Well, good morning. I would have you guys turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, we'll be looking at verses 25 through 30. Matthew 11, 25 through 30. Um, last week, Matt spoke on Jesus and how he pronounced the woes on the unrepentant cities where Jesus spent most of his time performing miracles while he was on this earth. And then the week before that, we were discussing the Pharisees and the scribes and how they refused to believe the prophets that came before Jesus and how they rejected John the Baptist and his message. And then ultimately we talked about how he was rejected himself, Jesus Christ, uh, as their Messiah. They wouldn't accept him. And this chapter in, in verse or chapter 11 is really marked by an utter rejection of Jesus. These were some of the most high officials at the time. They were men of great authority, great power, men of intellect and great knowledge, and yet they all rejected the Lord. They looked at what he did, they heard what he had said, and they concluded that this man was not going to be their king, and he was not going to be their Messiah. I mean, just just think about that for a second, that Jesus came down to this earth, he left behind fellowship with his Father in heaven, became a man, he knew what it was like to be a man. He experienced the same feelings of hunger and thirst, fatigue. He then demonstrates his power to prove that he is God, whether it be over the winds and the waves or over the demonic spirits, uh, whether it be over sickness or even death itself. And yet at the end of all these things that he's done to prove to his chosen people that he is indeed God, they blatantly reject him and, and say that it's blasphemous for him to be claiming such things. And you think, at the end of all that, after he's done all that, how would Jesus respond to what would be, in my mind, a, a quite a difficult blow to endure all that, to know that these people won't just reject him at the end, but they'll, even more than that, they'll crucify him to a cross to get rid of him altogether. And so I think, how would Jesus respond uh, to this, to people who don't want to hear about their sins, to people who don't want to listen to the truth of the word of God that he's, he's trying to tell them? And so today we'll be looking at that uh, in this passage about how did Jesus respond in the midst of all this rejection. And so let's look at Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. And it reads, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so in verses 25 and 26, we find the answer about how is Jesus going to respond to this unrepentant people, these people where he had ministered to, these people who he had uh, spent a lot of his time on this earth doing miracles in their cities. And if it were me, <clears throat> I probably would respond in anger or frustration or bitterness. But instead, we look at the response of Jesus, and he begins by praising and thanking his Father in heaven that despite the rejection of these men, God's perfect will is still being accomplished. Men's rejection of Jesus and his message, it didn't catch God off guard. He wasn't surprised by it. 
He knew that this was going to happen before it ever happened. And so nothing is going to prevent God's sovereign will and his sovereign plan from happening, not even the rejection of his chosen people. And so Jesus thanks his Father that he's hidden these things from the wise, from the prudent, and he's revealed them to babes. And it's not to say that God is opposed to smart people or he's opposed to people who are intelligent because God's created everyone with a degree of intelligence and he's allowed them to use their mind effectively. He's allowed them to reason and to think logically. But what he's opposed to is men who are proud of their intellect. I remember witnessing to a guy who was probably one of the smartest people I'd ever met in my life. And he could think logically, he spoke eloquently, he would read books on all the various religions of the world, and he could tell me about every single way in which they tell you that you can go to heaven and what you must believe in order to make it somehow to an afterlife. And he knew all that they had to say, and he could go on for hours about it. But when it came to the Bible and the simple message that you need to admit that you're a sinner, you need to repent of your sins, You need to trust that Jesus' finished work on the cross for your sins is all that you need. And when he heard that message, that's when it really bothered him. It was when he would read the words in the Bible that he was unable to accept them, if you will. And ultimately, it came down to the fact that, in his mind, accepting and acknowledging that he was a sinner was just too difficult for him because he thought to himself, well, I'm a good person. I'm striving to be a better person. I'm reading all these books, I'm, I'm knowing all the facts that I can to make myself as good of a person as I can be. Um, I don't think that I have a reason why I would not go to heaven. Um, and essentially it, it would hurt his ego, it would hurt his pride to accept this message because it's just too simple. How can it be that I can't do anything to get saved? How is it that I can't earn my salvation? In his mind, it was just this too naive of a story. It's too naive of a way of salvation. Too easy, too simplistic. There had to be some other way uh, that I can come to know uh, that I have salvation. And yet, to this day, because he was too proud and to look past his own worldly intellect, to this day, this man does not know the Lord. He has not received that salvation because... In his mind, it's too easy. It's too simple. It's not that he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. It's not that he doesn't know how he can be saved. But for him to accept that God's solution to sin is through admitting that you're a sinner, that to him is just too much. But can you imagine that, though? Being too proud to accept God's offer. Being too wise or too intelligent to accept the message that is so simple. And yet, that's exactly what the Pharisees and the religious leaders did. They were too proud of their own worldly intellect and their own worldly wisdom that they wouldn't accept the message of salvation that Jesus presented to them. And so no wonder later Jesus states in Matthew 18, uh, he says, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In order to accept the message of Christ, a person must become, uh, must come before the Lord with humility. Nobody can reason their way with their own worldly intellect into heaven. Now, the question might come to your mind, did, did, did God give these men and women a chance to trust him? And the answer is absolutely he did. 
God gave these cities every chance to trust in him and to make them uh, to make him lord over their lives. And yet they decided that Jesus isn't what they wanted. They refused to accept his offer and in turn they foolishly chose to reject him. And so God is not going to keep giving these cities more and more light when they've already rejected the light that they have. Instead, God will offer it up to babes, to those who are humble in heart, to those who are spiritually sick and can admit that they have a need for a physician. He's going to offer it up to those who are thirsty, to those who hunger and long for him, to those who are lost and it's not beneath them to admit that they need the Lord. In First, uh, First Corinthians says, But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to, dis- uh, to shame those which are mighty. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So if the intelligent or the so-called wise men are rejecting him, then God will happily offer the same thing to those that can hear the gospel and accept it without stumbling over their own pride. So to those who view themselves as too wise or too intelligent to need Jesus in their lives, to those that think that Jesus is just for the weak-minded, to those that are uh, spiritually blind and left in the dark as they reject the light that God's already given them, God will just allow them to continue down this path because they've already chosen to reject that light. And he'll leave them with whatever light they have. And he's not going to continue giving them more light. But to those that hear the truth of the gospel and they realize their need for a savior, Jesus reveals even more light to them. And he begins showing himself more and more to them. Essentially, this passage highlights the fact that God's plans are not going to be stopped. God's purposes will not fail even when the worldly wisdom and all the world society may reject Jesus. God will then shift his attention to those that will receive him like a little child. God will use the weak things of this world to put to shame the wise. And it really emphasizes that the weak people, that the nobodies of this world, are wiser than the wisest men and the men with the most worldly intelligence. Think about it, how much wiser is one who trusts in Jesus? than the person that's too proud and too wise in their own eyes to even admit that they have a need for him in the first place. So it says in verse 27, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. Just think for a second about that statement and just how profound it is. Jesus here is claiming to be the Son of God. He's saying that God is my Father. I can just imagine the people in, in their shoes as they're listening to this statement. This man is claiming that all things have been delivered to him by God the Father, who also happens to be his personal Father, and therefore he's claiming to be the Son of God. No one else could say that except Jesus. And yet I'm always in awe at how matter-of-fact he can say a statement like that because it's just simply a fact of who he is. Jesus is the Son of God. But his claim goes on farther to say that no one knows the Father except no one knows the Son except the Father. And there is a sense in which we don't fully understand everything about Jesus Christ. And the only one who fully understands and knows him 
fully, is the Father. You know, we may know him and read his word. We can know about his characteristics. We can trust him as our Savior. We can experientially know him from day to day as we follow him. And we can grow in our love for him. But there are just some things about an infinite God that we cannot wrap our finite minds around. For example, the fact that the Father and Son are equal members of a Godhead. The fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. I don't know if my mind can fully comprehend the levels of what that means. How is it that Jesus became a man? How is it that God came to this earth and experienced what it was like to hunger, to thirst, to be exhausted, to feel sorrow, to feel pain, to weep, to die? How is it that the God who never faints or gets weary experienced all these things? It's difficult for our minds to wrap around these concepts. And so there's a sense in which we can understand these ideas in theory, but no one can fully grasp or quite understand the Son like the Father can. And the same can be said of God the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. Uh, In the end, we may try to grasp at it, and we may think we understand it, but we may only be seen dimly with our own human understanding. Because can we honestly say that we understand that the love or understand the love that God the Father has for us? Do we understand how God the Father tenderly cares for the world, from the birds of the air, to the fish of the sea, to the bugs on the ground, to the beasts of the earth? Do we understand his precise coordination on how far he allows the ocean to come so that it doesn't go too far past the shore? Or do we understand how the earth is placed in the solar system so perfectly that if it was just tilted slightly in a different angle, it would be insurvivable either way? Or do we know the intricate detail of how a child is formed in the womb of the mother, fashioning all the organs and tissue and muscles together in a perfect manner? Or do you know how he keeps the heart beating every second? Can you explain down to the molecular level how he works it in such perfect synchronization? Or do you know, like today, how the lightning bolts, where do they go, which direction do they take? Where is their path? Many of these questions were asked in the final chapters of Job, and God gave these questions that Job could never answer. And it was simply to point out the fact that he knows very, we and Job himself knew very little and know very little of the inner workings of God. And God is really demonstrating just how little we know of him. He is showing his power and he has control over these things. And if this is just creation and how little we know about creation, how much less do we know about him and his attributes and his characteristics? Our minds are just too small to fully comprehend the vastness and the greatness of God the Father and his love towards us. And so, no one knows the Father except the Son. However, it does go on to say, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. Meaning that Jesus can and will reveal the Father to those who choose, to those who he chooses to reveal him to. It says in uh, John 14, Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have also known my Father. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Which this passage, or this verse, just tell us that if a person comes to know the Son, then they've also come to know the Father, because both are God. And no one comes to the Father except through first believing in Jesus Christ. It's important to note that Some people, when they read the last phrase in verse 27, the one whom the Son wills to reveal him, they'll say, aha, that means that Jesus has only pre-selected a few favored men and women 
that are going to be saved, and everyone else that hasn't been revealed the Father to, these are just men and women who are just destined from the beginning of birth to go to hell. And that's clearly not the case, and we need to be careful when we read passages like that to not jump to those conclusions. Uh, because in our minds, in a sense, it, if you will, it sounds economical, the fact that, if you think that way, that Jesus simply died for a select few, and ultimately the Father is then revealed to them. But that's simply not the case. Jesus' death was very uneconomical, if I can use that phrase, because the vast majority of those who he died for, and who he paid their sins, paid for their sins, they refused the offer of salvation. And we know this because of verses like John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So it's not that this offer was just for a select few. He offered this universally to all mankind, free of charge. And yet we do know that the vast majority chose willingly to reject it. It's just amazing that he, he chose to die knowing full well that most would not follow him. But to those who do follow him, to those who do choose to trust in him, he reveals the Father to them. And now in, in verse 28, he then makes the same exact offer of salvation. He says in verse 28, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Which means that the ones whom Jesus chooses to reveal the Father to are also those who trust in him as their Lord and Savior. Think about before this, what's just happened. Before he offers this, this gift of salvation, Jesus has just pronounced woes. He's been, you know, basically condemning these cities that have received his miracles, that he's walked among them and proven to them that he is God, and yet at the end, they rejected him. They wanted no part of him. And yet in the midst of this rejection, Jesus makes a universal offer to all mankind to come. And this offer, by the way, is still just as available to you today as it was the day it was written. It's an invitation to all people, all races, both men and women, young and old, to come. You know, I've been invited to a lot of invitations throughout my life, whether it be a wedding or be a birthday party or a graduation or sometimes even baby showers or bachelor parties or just random here and there uh, events. I've had a lot of invitations and typically in an invitation you have the terms and conditions laid out of what to expect like the time and date of when to come, uh, what you should bring, what the event's going to be like. And it's interesting that Jesus lays out the terms and conditions in his offer to us here. I've received, like I said, many different invitations throughout my life, but I can definitively say that this invitation that Jesus is about to give is the greatest and the most important invitation that you can ever be offered. And the invitation simply starts off with a command to come. And to come just simply means that a person needs to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that you must receive his free gift of salvation that comes by faith in him alone. In order to come, you must first realize that you have a need for Jesus. A healthy person doesn't come to see a doctor because they see no need for them. A person who has great sight doesn't see the need to go and and get glasses. A person who has excellent hearing, for example, wouldn't see the need to then seek out hearing aids. 
And the same as a person who thinks they are righteous or somehow are a good person, they don't see the need for a savior. Why do I need Jesus? I'm not a bad person. I don't need someone to save me. I can do it on my own. That's what they say in their ignorance. But I'll, I'll tell you that a prerequisite to coming to him is realizing that you are a sinner in need of a savior. And that single-handedly is the most difficult but most important thing that must be accepted. And you must also believe that Jesus is more than capable of forgiving you of your sins completely. In fact, he's already paid for your sins in full on the cross of Calvary. So Jesus says, come, and then he says, come to me. This means that our faith is not placed in our own self. It's not placed in the fact that I'm a good moral person. It's not placed in the fact that I go to church or that I give money to church. It's not placed in a preacher that you listen to. It's not placed in any mere person on this earth. Salvation is in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith. It says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Have you ever come to the point in your life where you just felt heavy and overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but if you're a believer this morning, I just want you to think back to the time before you got saved, because I remember the night I got saved, and a few hours before I got saved, I felt pretty good about my odds of going to heaven. I felt like I was a pretty decent person. I was only 10 years old, so I thought, how many things could I have done wrong? And on that night, I was reading through the Ten Commandments, and I remember reading... uh, verses like, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And I knew that I had done that before, and I I knew I was guilty before God. And so I said, okay, well, I've done one. And then I looked at another one, and it said, honor your father and your mother. And then I thought back to the numerous times I had received discipline for not doing that growing up, and I realized that I had broken another one. And I really couldn't count the number of times I had done that, have not honoring them or not obeying them. And so my optimistic approach to me being a good enough person began to feel like my odds were getting less and less of a chance of going to heaven. And then I continued on and I went on the list and hoping that the next command would be uh, maybe easier or more likely that I would have kept it. The next one said, you shall not lie. And I knew that if I had said I didn't do that, I'd be lying as well. And I knew the countless times I had told lies or, or said things that were not truthful. I went on to another one, hoping that maybe it would be a better outcome. I said, you shall not murder. And I knew I had hated people in my heart, and that in God's eyes, you know, hatred in the heart is equivalent to murder. And at that point, I, I didn't need to go any farther. I had already gone through four, and I had known that it was not just four sins I'd broken, it was four sins with continuous repetitive uh, disobedience to God in those four sins, um, which over the course of a lifetime, I couldn't count the number of times I'd done that. And I began, as I went farther down the list, I began feeling this weight of guilt. I felt this, I don't know how to describe it other than a heavy burden on my shoulders or on my back. It wasn't physically there, but it felt it there, that my sin was just too much for me to handle. And there was just nothing I could do to 
lift that burden. There was nothing I could do to save myself to take away that weight that I felt. I don't know if you've ever been to that point in your life, but I was there. And I, I was at that point of just realizing the gravity of my sin, of realizing that I have disobeyed a holy and righteous God. I am on a path that leads to destruction. I'm on a path that leads to hell. And that was the first time I had ever realized that I was a sinner. That was the first time I ever realized that I was not a good person. And uh, that was also the same night that I got saved, though. Because I was burdened by the weight of my sin. I was burdened by the weight that I was lost and that I was hopeless on my own. And it's only once you realize this, and only once you realize that you even have a need for him, that you can then be saved. And so if that's where you're at today, if you're unsure of your salvation, if you're weighed down by the weight of your sin or by the guilt or the burden of trying to somehow uh, be good enough or, or take away the weight of your sin on your own, then listen up to the offer that Jesus is about to make you. He says, and I will give you rest. Notice that in a regular invitation you'll receive from an event or from a party, you're usually required to bring something, whether it be a dish or you know, drinks or whatever it may be. Maybe there's even a present that you need to bring. But here, there is nothing that you can bring to be pleasing to God. He can't be bought with money. He can't be bought with good deeds or going to church. In fact, he wants to instead give you something. He wants to give you rest. And I'm not talking about rest after a tiring day. He's talking about a gift that only he can give. It's a gift that's undeserved by everyone who receives it. It's a gift that's unearned. It's a rest of conscience that you no longer have to worry or wonder if you have a righteous standing before God. I, I just remember the, just the relief I felt after trusting the Lord and knowing that if I were to die that night, for sure I know that if I were to die, I would be in heaven. And you know, not many people can say that. Not many people can firmly say that with conviction. And the reason I could say that was because I had a righteous standing before God. Not because of what I had done, but because what he had done on my behalf. I, uh, I decided to do some research over the last few weeks, <clears throat> just on my spare time. And I tried to put myself in the perspective of an unbeliever, looking for truth, looking for some kind of assurance that somehow if I do X, Y, or Z, that I'll go to heaven. What would it be like for someone who doesn't know the Lord to go through that process? And so I looked at various religions and, and the different ways that they mention you can go to heaven, whether it be Catholicism, the Mormons, Buddhists, um, pretty much any, anything you could think of, looking at what way can they provide me assurance that for sure I will go to heaven. What way can they tell me that for sure I've done enough? <clears throat> and I'll spare you um, hours of research and tell you that it was a hopeless and really depressing search in, a, in an attempt to find hope, in an attempt to find assurance of salvation. The closest assurance that I could even find, which, uh, funny enough, was from a Catholic website, said that they were, quote, hopeful of their salvation in Christ, but said that salvation is something that remains to be worked out. That was the closest I could ever get to something that would put my mind at ease, to put my mind at rest, that I would be securely going to heaven. 
And all the world religions teach you something uh, different as to how you can be saved. You must do X amount of good things. You must devote yourself to hours of service. You must do this or that. And then maybe, just maybe, you'll have the possibility of going to heaven. But even then, it's not 100% sure. There is really, at the end of that search, if I was in the shoes of an unbeliever, there is no rest to be found. There is no rest for those who have to work their entire lives never knowing for sure if they're going to heaven or not. But praise God, the Word of God says that these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus is offering true and real rest for the soul. He's offering certainty that if you believe on the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Jesus has paid for your sins once and for all and you won't be punished for the crimes that you've committed because Jesus the Savior of the world died on your behalf. That's the rest that Jesus is speaking about. And it's such a relief to hear. And it would have been a relief to a Jew at the time to hear as well because uh, in Matthew 23 it talks about the scribes and the Pharisees binding heavy burdens upon them that were hard to bear. And they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves would not move them with one of their fingers. And it, it's referring to the laws that were added to God's laws. It burdened down the Jews at the time with a load that was just impossible to bear. The people could never perfectly abide by all these rules and all these regulations. So the Pharisees and the scribes really used those laws to oppress the people with these legalistic burdens. And yet they themselves would not move a single burden with one of their fingers. These man-made burdens that people of Israel had, they had to bear alone. And yet Jesus, on the other hand, is offering something completely different. And his offer is found in verse 29. It says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now a yoke, for those who aren't familiar with it, because I wasn't super familiar with it either, is just a wooden beam that goes around uh, the necks of animals. Typically it's a pair of oxen. And the goal of the yoke is to enable these two animals to then work together to bear the load that they're pulling. And the Lord is saying that we should take upon ourselves his yoke and learn from him. Which practically means that we would be submitting to him and his will. It means that we're not trying to bear the burdens of life on our own. Instead, we're going to be yoked together with the Lord as we go through this journey of life. And we are, in effect, turning over the keys, turning over control over our own lives. And instead, we're giving Him full control. And we're letting Him lead us wherever He desires. And as we submit to Him, He teaches us His ways and we learn from Him. It's important to note, too, that Jesus... As he leads us, he's a gentle and humble teacher, which is a very stark contrast between the harsh and prideful teachers of the nation of Israel that were, uh, they were used to with the scribes and, and Pharisees. It's just a relief to know that Jesus is our guide. He is the one that when we fail him, when we don't follow exactly as we should, it says that he's gentle and kind with us. He's patient with us. He demonstrates mercy to us when we sin. He is the most ideal teacher you could ever have. And he has the heart of a servant who is both humble and ready to serve. And so who is better qualified than him to help bear our burdens? 
And if we submit to him by taking his yoke upon us, Jesus promises that we will find rest for our souls. This is something that mankind longs for. Our souls long for peace and rest. And this is something that Jesus offers to all who follow him. That's, that's an incredible gift that I am so thankful that I have. And while this passage does primarily deal with salvation, I believe there's an even broader application for the believers in Christ. The fact is that Jesus gives us rest throughout the Christian life as we are yoked to him. Because verse 30 says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke upon us is easy. Uh, If you looked at the Greek of what that word means, it literally means just well-fitting. The idea is that this yoke is just perfectly suited, tailor-made for you. And Jesus is going to give you a yoke that fits just right to bear the load that he's given you. But know that your load is also not more than you can handle. He knows exactly what you can and can't bear. And so his yoke is well-fitting for you. It's easy. And the best part is you don't have to do it alone. I, uh, I did a little bit more research on farm animals and found that when farmers were typically training new animals to plow their field during harvest times, they would oftentimes yoke the, the older and the stronger and more experienced animal that would then bear the weight and the load with a younger animal in order to guide them through the learning process. And the, the idea behind that really translates well in this passage where you have Jesus coming alongside us. He's stronger, wiser, more experienced than we could ever be. And so he takes us where we're at and he shows us the ropes. He bears the brunt of the load because he knows that the load of life is just too much for us to bear alone. And so a Christian can find joy, they can find peace in reading that he says, my burden is light. Jesus really, in effect, lightens our load. And what he asks of us to bear in comparison to what he bears is light. Now, I don't want you to be um, confused and think that somehow the Christian life has no problems or that there's no trials or no difficulties. It doesn't mean that we're free of hardships or heartaches or pain. You know, I haven't been around very long myself, but I realize that from observing in my own life and other believers that life is tough. In life, we experience trials. We experience persecution. We experience financial hardships, illnesses, and even the death of loved ones around us. And from it all, we experience pain. We experience heartbreak, sorrow. Um, But yet through all these things, I want you to see that no matter what life difficulty comes our way, or what hardship comes along the Christian life even, Jesus is right there alongside us waiting for us to turn our eyes towards him and to call upon him for help. So I just want to spend these last few minutes just going over the different things that we experience through life and how Jesus can help us through it and how he helps bear that load, how he helps carry that burden with us. Think about the things you go through life, like heartbreak or grief, for example. Have you ever felt heartbroken before? I know I have at different points in my life. And we can find peace in knowing that we're not going through that alone. The Bible says that the Lord, the one who we are yoked to, is near to the brokenhearted. To those who are in despair, the Lord is right there waiting to comfort them. 
if we would just simply come before him in prayer? Or what about trials in your life or hardships? Have you ever felt like you needed help? Or you felt like you didn't know what to do next in life? Or maybe you felt like the trial in your life that you were going through just seems too much to handle. Psalm 46, 1 tells us that God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in times of trouble. He is there for you. He is ready to assist you. To me, that's just a great relief to know that the one who created me, the one who not only just created me, but then saved me of my sins, is also intimately concerned with each and every trial that I go through. Every moment, every hour of my life is accounted for by him. And did you know that each and every trial and hardship that you go through has first been filtered by God before they're given to you? We know that because 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that no temptation has overtaken you such as common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So it's saying that God will not give you more than you can endure. He is not going to give you more than you can bear in a trial. And know that when he does give you that trial that's already been pre-filtered through him, he is right there yoked together with you to help you bear that load. Or what about uh, financial difficulties? Have you ever been through a financial hardship where you wondered, Lord, how am I going to put food on the table? Lord, how am I going to afford the education for my kids? How am I going to afford the rent this month or the mortgage payment? Lord, how am I going to afford even gas in my, my car? How am I going to afford clothes on my back? How am I going to afford, you know, having another child? And Matthew 6 tells us, I say to you, do not worry about life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about the body, what is in it, or what will you put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add a cubit to his stature? But why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet, I say to you that not even Solomon, in all his glory, was arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? After all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. I have constantly gone back to that passage throughout my life and realized that the Lord is aware of my needs. I don't need to be worrying or concerned about tomorrow or the future because we have a God who comes alongside us and provides for us daily, provides for our needs as they come up. I don't know about you, but if I didn't have the Lord in my life, I would continually worry about my future, about how things are going to happen. How am I going to even afford the next five years of my life? How am I going to get this or that? And yet, it's awesome to know, and it brings rest to my mind, and it should as well to yours, to know that God is both aware of our needs and able to provide for them. He's not forgotten your needs. He's not unable to provide for you. And in knowing these things, it should alleviate the burdens of life, knowing that I'm not doing this alone. He is right there with me at all times. He is on a daily basis providing for me each and every day. And we can cast all our cares, all our worries upon him, because we know that he cares for us. 
And I think probably the most difficult burden in life, or oftentimes I think, is a person's own personal health or their own well-being. Or, if it's not your own well-being, it could be the death of a close loved one or family member. But have you ever noticed the stark contrast between how the world deals with a loss of a loved one versus how a Christian deals with it? I've seen a fair share of deaths in my life, being in the hospital, and it seems as though there are a lot of different ways of reacting to the death of a person. But more often than not, <clears throat> um, it's a bitter, uh, awful time to be there around a family who has just lost a loved one. I remember particularly um, one who had died recently, and it was a daughter who had lost her father. And I remember the patient passing away shortly before this. And after we broke the news to the daughter, you could just see her go pale. And she began sobbing at first, and then just bitterly wailing. And it was so loud that no matter what part of the unit you were on, you could just hear her screams through the hallway. And it was just this utter pain that she felt in her heart of knowing that she had just lost her dad. And it was just, she was unconsolable. There was nothing we could do to give her any peace. There was nothing we could do to take away her pain. She just felt this separation from him that hurt her so badly. And it must have been at least an hour before we finally... Um, could even coherently talk with her because she was just in such deep agony over losing her father. And as I looked at her, I could just see that very clearly the family was not believers, but knowing that she had no hope, there was no comfort for her. From the perspective of her, life began at conception and at the end, death, and that's it. There's no more to it for her. That's it. The separation is eternal in her mind. And yet, on the contrast, if you look at how a family responds to the loss of a believer, it's entirely different. It's not that believers don't cry. It's not that we don't feel pain. And we, sure, we definitely do. Um, but it's not a lasting sting like we talked about this morning. Death doesn't have the final victory. It's not an eternal separation from the other person. If the person who is dying or who has died is, is a believer, then we know that they have left this broken world and they have entered into the glorious presence of their Savior. And they finally are able to see him face to face. Yes, as believers, we cry. We're sad for that temporary situation of being separated from them, from this earth. But we know that they are now with the Lord. They know, uh, we know the truth uh, that life in heaven is so much better than here on this earth. We know that one day, if we are two believers, we will see them again in heaven. And so we don't sorrow like the rest of the world does. We don't mourn as they do, as they are hopeless for what comes next, because there is no hope to offer. First Thessalonians 4 tells us this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain will be caught together with him in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's a a real encouragement, it's really a change of perspective to have that in view. I remember being there when Bill McDonald passed away in the hospital. In his final moments, hearing brothers and sisters in Christ who were rejoicing by singing hymns of praise and really victory over death. (laughs) As Bill went to be with the Lord, as he passed on from this life into an eternal uh, forever with the Lord. And even though I was a believer, at the time I was only 10 years old, and I remember I went off crying and sobbing because I had felt like I had lost a close family member. And at the time, that was the first time I had ever witnessed a death in my life. And so it was a bit shocking. But I kind of had, in some ways, a a hopeless cry. And it was kind of just mourning, feeling as if I would never see him again. And I remember particularly, I, I don't remember, I don't know if Howard remembers this, but particularly I remember Howard coming up to me as I was crouched down in a corner of the hallway and I was just crying and uh, just really bawling my eyes out and he said David it's okay you don't need to be sad Bill's with the Lord now he's at rest David he's free of the pain that he experienced rejoice David because Bill is now with the Lord and at that moment it hit me because it's true as believers we truly do have hope after this life. It's not a hopeless ending. There is so much more joy to know that, uh, or there's, there's so much joy to know that even in death itself, the Apostle Paul says that it's gain in the eyes of believers. To know that we are headed towards an eternal uh, forever with the Lord. That's far better than staying here on this earth. And so in the eyes of Paul, it was gain to him. So even in death, whether it's us personally dying, or a loved one, we have the comfort of knowing the Lord is right there along with us to bring us peace, to bring us comfort during these hard times, and to really give us a, a true and lasting perspective of, uh, of what life looks like past this earth. I was just thinking this week that even though we may go through these things in life, whether it's death or sorrow or pain or hardship or financial difficulties or difficult trials, Even though we may go through all of that in this life, as believers, we can look forward to the time, as it says in Revelation, when God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And I certainly look forward to that day when all the things in life that I thought were so important and so significant become insignificant. It really, by having that forward look to heaven, to that time when we're with the Lord, where there's no more of any of those things, it gives us a new perspective that the world simply just cannot see, it cannot have, because they don't know the Lord. And so as we consider the Lord this morning, I just want you to realize and and just take away the idea of what a blessing it is to know that we are yoked with the one who gives us peace, who gives us comfort to alleviate the burdens that are just too difficult to bear alone. And we are privileged to have 
a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. And we can have peace knowing that we can rely upon Jesus Christ throughout our lives, in every circumstance, in every trial in life, and we can praise him for being our Savior, our guide, our helper, our comforter, through what would be too difficult of a journey to bear alone. And we look forward to that day when we leave this earth and we see him face to face. Let's just pray. Dear Lord, we're just thankful for just your truth and your word and how you you offer this gift of salvation, Lord. And if there's anyone today who hasn't trusted you and taken that rest upon them for their souls, Lord, I pray that, Lord, they would accept you today and trust in you. Lord, what a, a relief it is to no longer bear the burden of, of sin and, and the guilt of it and to know that, Lord, you've bore it all on the cross and you've taken away all of our sins. I pray, Lord, that there's anyone who doesn't know you, they'd come to know you today. And Lord, as we go through this journey of life, Lord, we just praise you and thank you that we have you that we are yoked to, and that we don't have to bear the burdens of life alone, that we continually can look towards you, that we can turn our eyes upon you and find peace and help during our times of need, and that you are our guide and our comforter throughout life, Lord. And we just look forward to that day when we are one day with you face to face. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.